Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's podcast, I just want to thank everyone who has supported our show by listening, subscribing, sharing, and most importantly, by donating. Spike's content is free and it always will be. It's thanks to your donations and regular donations in particular that we've been able to keep going and growing. The Spiked Podcast has now grown to a point where we're able to get sponsorship. What that means for you is that there's another way you can support the show by checking out some of the deals we're able to pass your way. But donations are still by far the best and most direct way to support us. So if you think we're doing something right, saying what needs to be said, challenging what needs to be challenged, then please do consider starting a regular donation if you haven't already. As little as £5 per month can go a long way. If you'd like to make a donation, you can do that by going to spiked-online.com and hitting the big red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button is in the top right corner. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Reading terror attack, trans ideology and the Karen phenomenon. Thames Valley Police say they're investigating a serious incident in a park in Reading. This has now been declared a terrorism incident. The Libyan national has been arrested. He's thought to be an asylum seeker. Khairi Sardullah had come to the attention of MI5 last year but was not considered to be an immediate risk. I'm appalled and sickened that people should lose their lives in this way. Last weekend, a suspected Islamist terrorist, Kairi Sadala, stabbed three people to death in Reading. Sadala, a 25-year-old from Libya, was previously known to security services. He was even investigated as someone who might wish to travel abroad to join an Islamist group, but he wasn't deemed a particular threat. Less than a week later, it feels like the attack has already been forgotten about. Reading was just the latest in a long line of Islamist terror attacks, which have now taken the lives of 40 people in the past five years. Over 300 people have been killed in Europe by Islamist attacks over the same period. But there seems to be a real reluctance to grapple properly with the issue. Tom, you've written a bit about Reading this week. What are your thoughts well, I think just picking up on what you said in the introduction, what is most striking, you know, we're recording this five days after the attack, how quickly it's fallen off the agenda. You know, how quickly um, a suspected Islamist terrorist murdering three people in cold blood, injuring three more, is almost just like a kind of second or a third story by this point. How quickly we went back on to talking about the pubs reopening, or that twat who flew that White Lives Matter banner over Burnley FC, rather than paying attention to just the latest form of violent, Islamist, suspected Islamist, we should say hatred in our midst. I think there's an undeniable tendency, and we've seen it this week, to downplay Islamist terrorism, to basically treat it as if it's like a kind of horrible accident that took past, like a pile up, you mourn and then you move on, and to just completely exaggerate the far right threat. And I think that's that's significant because one of the things that was most striking was in the immediate aftermath of the Reading attack, you saw this very strange thing that happened on Twitter with Ash Sarkar from Navarra Media posting an entirely innocuous photo of her eating an ice lolly far-right nutcases went after her, sent her death threats, loads of right-wing snowflakes claiming with no basis that she was, you know, mocking the dead, etc. And then wave after wave of 
solidarity you sort of expressed to her for having to have gone through that. Now, on the one hand, her treatment was appalling, but at the same time, you couldn't help but notice that the level of concern being expressed about this particular incident online um, seemed to far outweigh any kind of solidarity being expressed to the, the slain men in question and their families. And I think this is a pattern. You know, as you say, there is constant talk about the threat of the far right in recent years. You know, there's been even the Metropolitan Police and the government have put far more emphasis on this as a threat, despite the fact it doesn't materialise actually into killings on our streets. And I'm not saying for a second that we should be blasé about the threat posed by the far right. But what I think is so striking, and I think we've seen it this week as well, is that there are plenty of people who are surprisingly blasé about the threat posed by Islamist terrorism. There's complicated reasons for that, but I still think it's pretty ghoulish and also seems to me to make us far less likely of being able to root out this very violent form of hatred that seems to exist in our midst. Ella? Yeah, I'm really quite shocked about the fact that there hasn't been more outrage by, you know, not just the attack, but also the fact that this guy was known to the authorities, was both radicalised and severely mentally ill and very clearly needed to be watched by someone, monitored by someone. And it's almost exactly the same as the Usman Khan case in London Bridge in 2019. Again, known to the authorities for one reason or another, be it sort of oversight or just bad process, was allowed out and then committed an atrocity. And why isn't the news full of outrage at why we are not being protected by the people in the institutions that claim they're there to protect us? I mean, this is really serious. Why are people like this slipping through the cracks and because of either their own mental health issues or the fact that they've been exposed to serious kind of radicalised material are going out to kill people. I mean, just that on its own should make the front pages day after day after day. But as Tom says, I mean, partly because there's so much else going on in the world and we see him obsessed by certain news stories over others and not least we've had this strange situation in which an important issue like racism has overtaken you know the issue of a global pandemic you can understand why focus might not be uh, you know directly on an issue like this but really the fact that it's took a, just a matter of days for it to slip into the kind of back pages of the newspapers show that there's something going on as depressing as it sounds i think it might be that we've sort of almost become used to this that that's kind of one explanation I can think for it that Islamist terror attacks have sort of not become the norm, but we kind of expect them. And that's a really bad thing because they're absolutely not the norm. And, you know, despite the fact that we're talking about other things, this issue of Islamist radicalization on British soil with people who live and were born in Britain is still very much a problem. If you look at the, you know, I'm worried about the far right in some aspects. You know, I think that the more we censor certain views, the more we demonize certain views, the more we're pushing people to a perhaps not radicalized, but certainly a, a more pernicious form of right wing thought than I would like. But if you, know, you only had to look at the response to the statues rally the other weekend, where the the huge far right threat that came out was mostly pissed idiots <laughs> who went and ransacked picnickers in Hyde Park. I mean, for Christ's sake. So, you know, we need to prioritise things here, actually, and say that just because there's a lot going on in the world doesn't mean that a, a terror attack, which, you know, is, is actually really complicated in which you know, it happens just after the protesters and the three people who die are gay men. You know, there's so much going on there that hasn't really been unpicked. Then you do have to hold a mirror up to yourself and say, what's going on in society that we seem to think that this is something that doesn't deserve a huge amount of attention? And I think that's where the 
comparison with the far right does become quite instructive because if you think about how do we process a far right attack, you know, even when it's on the other side of the world, if you think about, you know, the Christchurch killings or, or something like that, there was a real desire to kind of confront what does this mean about society? What does it mean about the mainstream in our society? Sometimes it went a bit too far by blaming essentially right-wing columnists that people didn't like was for some reason implicated in in this horrendous attack. But in, in this one, in, there's essentially nothing. There's no questioning of anything. There's some good reporting on it, but there's not much commentary. There's not much desire to get to the root of it. And, you know, it reminds me of the fact that it, it I mean, it mm. is clear that People are just far less interested in Islamist terror. People are less interested in in the victims. They don't seem to carry the same kind of moral weight. And obviously, there is a kind of fear in a lot of people that it might be seen as is- Islamophobic to even discuss, yeah. you know, Islamist terror attacks. But to be honest, you know, that is the ultimate kind of bigotry of low expectations. Of course, you know, Muslims in Britain do not support Islamist terror and are probably as frightened by it as anyone else. If you took a global view of Islamist terror, Muslims are among the most affected by it. It's it's Muslim majority countries where these things are happening and where people are suffering. So the fact that I think people feel this reluctance to discuss it is is completely bizarre. And in many ways, it's kind of morally depraved. You know, we need to get to the bottom of this. Tom, did you want to come in? Yeah, no, I think it is morally depraved because I think what you're seeing from a lot of people on the left, but even the kind of mainstream liberal left, is that they place their narrative ahead of human life at this point in relation to actually rooting out these problems Mm. because they're so wedded to this idea that the violent far right is definitely on the march in Britain, that's being ginned up by Boris Johnson and Brexit and various other things, that it's spilling over from mainstream commentators that they happen to dislike on other grounds. They downplay the threat of Islamist extremism. It's also exacerbated by the fact that, as you say, they have this incredibly patronising approach, which is that if you even try and grasp this nettle, you're either going to upset Muslims as if to treat them all as extremists, which seems to me to be the opposite of what they claim to be saying, or you're going to just inspire more animus from the white working class population and you're going to get more and more attacks. But that's such a depraved response. And there is just fundamentally no comparison between the threat of these two things. You know, you pointed it out in your in your intro, you know, prior to this Reading attack, because we don't really know all the details of it yet, but you know, 37 people killed in Islamist attacks over the past five years, two people killed in far-right attacks. Those two people, those two attacks are things that we should talk about, we should reckon with. There is a rise in far-right activity. You can see that in referrals to the Prevent scheme. You can even see that in the proportion of people in prison for terrorism offences that are far-right related, but it's still a tiny proportion. And I just find it really quite shocking that people, particularly on the left, seem entirely disinterested in Islamism when, frankly, it is the most threatening, organised and bloody form of fascism, if we want to call it, that actually exists in society today. Their inability to confront it, I think, is is shameful, even though the reasons for it are ones that we can all recognise. Ella, do you want to make a final point? I mean, ignoring this incident that happened in Reading is going to have bad consequences. And I don't mean, I mean, Tom's just said, you know, it, it is depraved and a very, you know, patronising but insulting view that, you know, if you react the wrong way to this, then you're going to create a far-right surge. That's not what I'm trying to say, but immediately after you had the the White Lives Matter idiotic banner that was flown at Burnley. But there was a sort of serious thing in there, which was you can understand how some people would come to the conclusion of you have a, a righteous global outpouring of rage at the murder of one black man by police. 
And then separately, you have this rather silent response to the murder of three white men by a terrorist. And you can see how without talking about it, people might come to the conclusion of, well, you know, screw this. No one thinks white lives matter. And then they go down the kind of the mirror image of the identity politics route with, with going along with this whole, you know, racism against whites and all that kind of dark and muddy area. And actually, if you just gave these things the attention that they needed and said, what's really going on here? No, this terror attack wasn't related to the Black Lives Matter protest. They finished two hours early. This guy was radicalised. What's going on there? Remember that discussion that we were having about radicalization? you know, six months ago before the world got turned upside down? Basically talking about these things openly without fear of Islamophobia or racism or any of those allegations, then you allow the truth to come out. And it's really doing a disservice to not just public discussion, but it's also creating an ever increasing tension around this issue that isn't going to have good consequences. If you want to give more fodder to the likes of people like Tommy Robinson, who are true bigots, and as of yet, most people still think he is a true bigot. He has a sort of small, passionate following. Then, you know, tell people they can't talk about these issues because this kind of censorship is what grows that tension and reaps these kind of consequences. There are so many benefits to lifelong learning. That's why I love The Great Courses Plus. You can expand your curious mind, build on your skills, improve your memory and self-confidence. The list of reasons to try it goes on. The Great Courses Plus is created for the lifelong learner in all of us. This streaming service provides access to thousands of fascinating fact-based lectures across almost any topic imaginable. The courses are taught by world-leading professors and experts. You can explore topics from world history and the stock market to learning how to paint or cook. And with the Great Courses Plus app, it's easy to watch or listen anytime, anywhere, just as you might do with this podcast. At the moment, I'm really enjoying an economic history of the world since 1400. So often you find that when we talk about history, the focus is on politics, society and culture, and for no bad reason, of course. But we tend to overlook the things that actually occupied most people for most of the time, as they either conquered new lands in search of plunder or toiled in factories or on farms to survive. This course gives a fascinating overview of how we went from subsistence living to mercantile exchange, all the way to the modern world of globalisation and tech. So I definitely recommend checking it out. You can continue your journey as a lifelong learner by signing up for The Great Courses Plus. And for a limited time, they're offering all listeners to the Spike podcast a free month of access to their entire library. But to start your month trial, you must sign up today using the special URL. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Now, back to the Spike podcast. Over the past few years, there's been a long and drawn out conflict over proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act, which would allow transgender people to self-identify as their chosen gender in law. On the one side, you've had trans activists demanding self-identification. On the other, you've had mostly feminists concerned about women's spaces. These proposals have now been shelved by the government, but the ideas that led to the proposal are still widespread, perhaps not among the public at large, 
but in institutions from the police and prisons to schools and the health service. Joanna Williams is joining us down the line to talk a bit about this. Joanna is a spiked columnist and is also the author of a new book, which is free to download, called The Corrosive Impact of Transgender Ideology. Joanna, first of all, can you tell us a bit about what provoked you to write this book? So there's been a very heated and very protracted debate, as you indicated, Fraser, between feminists, mainly on the one hand, and transgender activists on the other hand. And I'd be very cautious to draw a distinction between lots of transgender people who it seems to me just want to get on with their lives quite happily and are not really looking to turn their lifestyle into a political statement. And a group of activists, many of whom are not transgender, who have sought to make political cause and in the process erode lots of women's rights that have been hard won over many years. And yeah, like I said, the whole thing's become really horrible and heated And it's become very pernicious, I think, in many of the major institutions in our society, in lots of media outlets, in schools, which particularly concerns me. I think it does threaten, like I say, some some very hard-won rights. Let's talk a little bit about schools then at first. I mean, there is the kind of phenomenon of, of transgender children. How widespread is that and how are institutions responding to it? Well, I think we need to be very careful not to overstate the case here. It's not the case that en masse children up and down the country are opting to change their gender, but it's certainly a growing phenomenon. And the thing that really concerns me is the element of contagion. You get clusters of girls in certain geographical areas or certain schools where transgender becomes almost catching, if you like. Um, There's lots of discussion about whether girls are groomed through social media or the role of PSHE lessons, for example, in encouraging children to question their gender identity, perhaps at an age where they're so young they are not even confident about whether they are a boy or a girl to begin with. And already they're told that this is something that's optional, something that they can begin to question. So my view is that there is no such thing as as a child who's born transgender. No child emerges or baby emerges into the world having a brain that has a separate gender identity to the baby's biological sex. This is a completely arbitrary, socially constructed category. This is something that children pick up from the adults in their lives. And I think it's it can be really pernicious. And we've seen most recently a number of our young women, very, very brave young women, coming out and saying that they regretted going down the process of transitioning, that they now realise that they are actually women and they're lesbians and they're very happy being female lesbians, but had been led by various processes to think that they were transgender and, and they were not happy about that. Ella? Not talking about children anymore, but looking at adults, Joe. the question of women-only spaces has been something that's caused a huge amount of very vicious debating. And, you know, the argument goes that trans women should be let into formerly women-only spaces, you know, from the trivial, like Hampstead Ponds, to the serious, like, rape crisis centres. And on the other side, more often than not, radical feminists who have been central in setting up these spaces say, 
this isn't allowed because this is specifically spaces for people who are biologically women. And, you know, unisex bathrooms have existed for a very long time and often there's informal ways in which people organise around this. But what does this row around transgender do to the more serious women-only spaces like prisons, like shelters? Is there an argument for saying that we should draw quite a strong line there and say this debate doesn't enter into those kind of serious spaces? Yeah, I think we've seen some very serious consequences, particularly in prisons, in case of inmates who are prisoners who um, change gender, are male prisoners who change gender uh, following arrest and incarceration and have gained access to women's prisons and have carried out sexual assault once inside a prison. And I think that's an absolute appalling abdication of responsibility on behalf of the prison service. I think there really is a duty of care to protect women inside prison. You are quite literally unable to escape from the fellow inmates. Uh, I think, you know, we can point to cases like this, but the argument I would always like to come back to is that in a way, it's not fair to portray transgender people or transgender people as potential rapists or potential attackers. And I'm absolutely convinced that the overwhelming majority of transgender people haven't become transgender with some secret plan in mind that this will help them rape and abuse women. But I think irrespective of any issues around child protection or the protection of women or women's safety, I think fundamentally there should be a right to privacy and there should be a right for women to be able to just delineate this is a female only space and it doesn't need to be done on the grounds of safety. It doesn't need to be done for pointing at potential rapists or anything like that. Just as I think men should have the right to say, well, you know, this is a male only space. I think women should have that right too. And I think particularly for girls growing up, you know, in in schools, but, but for women more broadly, whether you would want to use it or not, actually saying, you know, this is a women-only gym session or a women-only pool for two hours on a Monday morning, I think is not an unreasonable thing to be able to say. Tom. So Joanna, I just wanted to ask you about how you felt this ideology, this transgender ideology, you know, as distinct from transgender people themselves, how quickly it's kind of conquered all before it. Because one of the things that's so striking is so many institutions in society have taken on these ideas, whether it's the idea that, you know, even babies don't have biological sex through to the idea that you can change gender almost at the snap of your fingertips. And whilst you might expect that to take root in certain institutions, you know, you've pointed out that the Conservative Party were the ones who were ferrying the Gender Recognition Act, which they've now rode back on through Parliament originally. I know one of the people who was most critical of the change was um, Maria Miller, who was a Tory Equalities Minister for many years. So how is it that this set of ideas, which I think it's fair to say the vast majority of the public certainly um, find strange to say the least, have just managed to yeah, conquer all before it in relation to our institutions in society? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And that's the thing that is most shocking about this. I think just the a speed and the complete extent to which this has gained ground in every institution. And I don't think there's one straightforward explanation. I mean, people can point to various cunning strategies that were taken on board by the transgender movement, uh, legal cases that they fought and won, um, and particularly the alignment with the gay, lesbian rights lobby. 
But I think more to the point, you have to actually look at what it says about these institutions themselves. So particularly the Conservative Party, for example, why was the Conservative Party so quick to roll over and just give ground and go along with all of this? And it seems to me that there's a real vacuum when it comes to moral authority in lots of these institutions, right from schools to prisons to the Conservative Party. You know, there's this, on what basis do you have your authority in society? And it seems that a lot of institutions find it really difficult to argue where their authority comes from. What right do they have to govern? What right do they have to teach children in a school? And in that vacuum then comes the transgender rights movement with this ready-made victim cohort and advocating on behalf of this community of victims becomes a way of actually gaining some moral authority for yourself. I think particularly in relation to the Conservative Party, I think the history of Clause 28, I think they've, they've kind of been so fearful of having that pointed out to them that they've almost preempted any arguments that may come from the trans movement and gone and kind of done double what may have been expected. Again, I think this is very unhelpful for actually for transgender individuals, but this constant victim status that's reiterated again and again, particularly when you talk about transgender children, uh, the word that's used most frequently is suicide. And it's this moral threat to parents. If you don't accept that your child is transgender, your child will commit suicide, your child will be dead within a year, which is a really appalling thing to say to parents. But that victim status then really kind of lends weight to institutions to assume the moral authority of acting on behalf of this group. Have you always wanted to visit a different country, but didn't want to feel like an outsider because you didn't know the language? Babbel is here to help you learn that language. I've been testing out my beginner Spanish with the iPhone app in case I ever get to have a post-lockdown holiday in the sun this summer, and it's been really fun. Babbel has a clear and simple interface, guiding you through your learning journey in a fun and smooth way. It's designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks using daily 10 to 15 minute lessons. Babbel teaches real life conversations. You learn through interactive dialogues. Speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. The lessons are lovingly created by over a hundred language experts. That's real people, not translation machines. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. The teaching method has been proven to be effective across multiple studies. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all your devices if you want to switch between the two. So try Babbel today. Just go to babbel.co.uk or download the app for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot co dot UK or download the app to try for free. Babbel, learn a new language and make it your own. We've all seen the Karen meme online. While at first it seemed to refer to a bossy white woman, usually with a soccer mom haircut, who demands to speak to the manager. But now the meme has spiralled out of control, with social media users looking to expose so-called Karens for racism. This week, when a white woman flipped off a driver called Carlos Dillard, he followed her home and started filming her. 
Clearly in distress, she broke down in tears and tried to cover up her face and her license plate, saying, he wants to say I'm a Karen. She was right. The video has been viewed millions of times and Twitter users have tried to track her down. Dillard, the man who filmed the encounter, has filmed a number of Karens and even sells t-shirts related to his pursuits. So has the Karen bashing gone too far, Ella? This is such a weird video because when I was first reading the commentary around it, really I could only find out is that she'd, as Americans say, flipped him the bird. And so I thought, they're having this scale of altercation and all she did was give him the middle finger. What's gone on here? So your first thought is this is much bigger than this video. Surely something else has gone on. And then, you know, there's this allegation that she used the N word against him. But really, there's not a huge amount going on here. And the really damaging thing about it is that it's perfect evidence of this sort of growing trend for people to escalate things on social media after the fact. And, you know, the very act of filming this altercation, rather than just having it out one-on-one together, the desire behind Carlos was to shame this woman online. It wasn't to teach her a lesson at the time. It wasn't to stop her from being racist. It was to wreck her life for this one alleged incident. And that's really terrible. You know, I remember writing a column for Spiked about the a different filmed incident between a black man who was walking in the Ramble and a white woman with a dog, now infamous, because it happened within hours of George Floyd's killing. And in that incident, you can say that it was lucky that there was a, a camera involved in some ways because it revealed the prejudice of this woman trying to weaponize the police against this black man. But again, in that video, you know, leaving aside the racist elements of it, there was a sense of why are you filming someone from walking their dog in the park? I'm just very uncomfortable with this trend of using video footage to shame people. And, you know, Brendan O'Neill has written a column for Spike this week talking about the fact that this is usually directed towards women. And the phenomenon of Karens, you know, being like, you know, a whingy woman with a certain haircut who goes up and asks you to speak to the manager often has a very kind of sneering tone attached to it. And while we can sort of laugh at memes on Instagram and a lot of it is flippant, there is a nasty undertone to this, which is basically saying that there are women in America who should be written off. You know, people then wonder why there's big surges of white middle-class women voting for Trump. I mean, it's an incredibly ugly situation that the key point is doesn't do anything to fight racism. In fact, it's rather embarrassing for all parties involved. Tom? Well, I think what was so striking watching that video was that the discussion around racism in America has, in these situations, just become a kind of hysteria. You know, it has become a kind of witch hunt, as as Brendan O'Neill pointed out on Spike this week. And whilst we might be used to kind of accusations of racism being weaponized in politics that's something that we've seen for quite a long time people trying to fell their opponents often off the back of what are sometimes quite spurious claims that they hold some kind of racial animus we're seeing this play out on social media and kind of in real life in real time and it's really pretty disturbing brendan makes the comparison in his article with you know a kind of salem-like atmosphere and there's something really to that you know you have on the one hand this kind of sense in which the accuser is holy all they have to do is make this accusation the expectation that someone has to recant as we've seen in some cases of these karens being shamed on the internet in somewhat unclear circumstances and i think what's quite striking about the carlos dillard slash leah video um, as she's only known is how you can see in real time that she realized what this means she realized what him calling her a karen and filming her means it's him trying to ruin her 
life, essentially. Now, of course, we don't know the details of the case, but there's very little to go on to suggest that she did anything else than actually flipping the bird, as he said. It's only really when he's challenged by a passerby that he seems to bring up the N-word accusation. But anyway, you know, we could relitigate these things all day. But one of the things which I do think it really has shown is that if we get into a position where people are just throwing around accusations of racism like this as a kind of weapon, it gets you into a really, really bad place. It creates a really horrendous atmosphere on the one hand, but also I think it just trivialises, you know, what again was supposed to be a very serious discussion about racism and racial inequality in society. The fact that this comes off the end of it, I think is pretty shocking. And in the case of someone like Carlos Dillard, there's nothing else that you can say of him. He seems to be someone who's just getting off on the fact that he can use this as a weapon against people. Mm. And the fact that that space has been created for people like that to exploit... I think is pretty shocking and I think just shows the fact that yeah what began as a discussion about racism has just bred into a pretty unhinged racial hysteria which we need to pull back on as quickly as possible. And as you kind of alluded to Tom I mean it's 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 on social media it's not directed at politicians or business people these are just normal members of the public these are just private citizens. I've been really disturbed by the way that racism allegations are now being weaponized against teenagers and you know there are celebrities now sharing the details of teenagers at school who have done things like they've been filmed you know saying the n-word while rapping along to a song and then suddenly their name their likeness their social media handle is all over the internet shared by blue tick people with hundreds of thousands of followers and rather than you know adults stepping in and saying hang on, this is going to ruin someone's life. What are you doing? This is inappropriate. There are better ways to deal with racism. A lot of adults are praising it. Mainstream media are praising this as this great, fantastic purge against, you know, racist 12-year-olds. I mean, it's it, we've really gone into a complete hysteria, you know, where even children are, are evil. You know, it makes you laugh because it's so ridiculous, but it's not funny. And, you know, that video of the ramble that became so viral in Central Park with Christian Cooper was the black man filming it and Amy Cooper was the white woman calling the police and after it had come out and it it had sort of went viral Christian Cooper made a real point of coming out and saying right we've talked I've forgiven her I don't want this woman's life to be ruined he sort of acknowledged the fact that this sort of global attention on this one moment in this woman's life was terrible you know I'm really worried about forgiveness and our ability to allow people to make mistakes because there's this real witch hunty atmosphere to everything that if you put one foot wrong, that's it, you're gone. And I don't want to scaremonger about, you know, the problems with social media and online life. You know, hear people talking about the fact that once you post one picture, it's up there forever and that's terrible. But I mean, there is something in the fact that I think a lot of us, even though we're absolutely sure that we are not bigots or we're not you know, racists or sexists or terrible people are sort of wondering, is someone going to pull something out of my past that I can't even remember and frame me for something? And it only takes, you know, a a matter of minutes for something to go viral and wreck your life. And it's really wrong that we're, a lot of us are sort of living in fear of that. And if that's what anti-racism has become, is to make people nervous to speak, then that's not doing the job of fighting racism. Because what you actually, I mean, look, it's fine to lose your temper in the moment and not be able to have a civil conversation with someone who's allegedly calling you the N-word, fine. But in terms of dealing with fighting racist prejudice, naming and shaming and having these pylons on social media is not going to solve it at all. I think the other thing just to say is that, especially in relation to the kids stuff, which, as you say, Fraser, was really shocking, the fact that so many grown people with big platforms were jumping on this, is the fact that 
all of this kind of hysteria, all of this kind of, you know, doxing people, filming people for minor or alleged transgressions, it's going to have the absolute opposite intended effect, if it is the intended effect. It's going to make people of different ethnic backgrounds feel far more nervous around each other, feel far more nervous about their interactions to second-guess themselves. And particularly with kids and young people where you think, you know, they're growing up in a generation when really people of different backgrounds are far more relaxed around each other than ever before you know there's far more intermarriage there's all of these different things which are kind of good indicators we're kind of reintroducing a level of this new kind of etiquette this new kind of fussiness this new kind of hyper awareness of yourself and other people how you're different how you should act which seems to me are only going to create more frictions make people feel more nervous around each other and at a time when notwithstanding the last few weeks they've got more reason to feel you know more relaxed in each other's company than ever before You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.